thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study, the podcast where we read the Bible as a source of inspiration and strength to help you live into God's abundant vision for your life and for the world. Hey, y'all, this is Alex, your host of Liberation Bible Study. For today's episode, I am delighted to have with me Dr. Keisha McKenzie, who is Director of Digital Strategy at Auburn in New York City. Today, we will be reading the book of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, through the theme of identity. Keisha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alex. It's so fun to get to be in conversation about this text with you. I like you. (laughs) I love that. Um, So it's our practice on this show to introduce ourselves, our pronouns, our work, and our identities, because we know that all of those show up whenever we are engaging with these texts. So Keisha, will you introduce yourself more? Sure, sure. So I am, how do I say, a transatlantic, black, gender nonconforming woman whose heritage goes from Jamaica and Britain and whose path took her to West Texas and Maryland. And I'm now hovering around Harlem, New York City. Um, My pronouns are she and they. And I've been working publicly in the queer Christian faithful space for about 10 years now. Ouch. Um, the, the, the years kind of sneak up on you, um, but it's been full years and beautiful years of connecting with community I didn't know existed, having my faith challenged, deepened, exploded, reconstituted, and growing. And the work that I do at the moment is in support of Auburn Seminary, which is a leadership development center in New York City that has Presbyterian roots and is now a multi-faith organization that works with faith-rooted justice leaders and organizers um, across the country on a variety of social justice and progressive issues. And so I use digital tools to, to help move the work forward, and I'm really excited about this chapter in my own life and um, the potentials for greater justice to drop down into this world. Amen. And I am Alex Patchen McNeil. My pronouns are he and him. And I have been serving as the executive director of More Light Presbyterians for almost five years. But working, as you say, Keisha, in this place of equipping and empowering people of faith to take bold stances Mm -hmm. around their pursuit and vision of God's justice for over a decade since I finished seminary in 2008, and even in seminary, and maybe even in college, so perhaps I could say 15 years, 20 years, um, if we were to roll back the clock, and I was born and raised in North Carolina as a white Presbyterian person, and moved from North Carolina to West Virginia, back to North Carolina when I was in middle school, and then Um, finished college and moved to Boston and D.C. and have recently returned back to North Carolina. And so it's interesting how much North Carolina has been a touch point for me in 
in these journeys of self and identifying as a transgender man and living back in North Carolina as a transgender man has been a good but an, an interesting adventure mm-hmm. for the past two years. And um, I bring to this text, if we're reading through the theme of identity, a real sense of journey around the construction of identity that I'm curious about for Jesus as well and the disciples. And I'm so excited to dig into more of this text with you and see what wisdom and vision for liberation that it has to offer. It's a a pretty rich chapter, really, not just the passage that we focused on. And I'm, I'm looking forward to zooming in. Awesome. So I'd love to begin with reading through the passage for the first time, and I'd love for you to be the one to read that for us, Keisha. And as we listen to be thinking about the context of the passage, what we know about this passage, and what really sparks our interest as we hear it, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time. So I'm reading from the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which is based on the Nurify Standard Version. Just for reference, uh, verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my word In this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. As you were reading through, how would you describe the context of this passage? And what's something that sparked your curiosity or interest as you were reading it? I I kind of went back to the beginning of the chapter and um, this whole who do men say that I am comes after the feeding of the 4,000 where suddenly there's enough bread in seven loaves for everybody to be full, fed, um, and for there to be leftovers. And then then there's a critique of the establishment and then there's a critique of the disciples. And then there's a like another point of service 
So it starts with service, there's critiques, there's another point of service, and there's the critiques of, of friends, um, and then there's this identity statement and this get behind me Satan thing, which is kind of interesting. And then this kind of challenge about the value of our lives and the, the struggle between trying to preserve what is precious to us and risking it all and the challenge of, I don't know, it's kind of threatening in some contexts of, of hearing Jesus say, those who are ashamed of me and my words in this generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of you when he comes in the glory of, of his father. So there's like some moving from the present time to some future time, that sense of, of things, and we can talk about that later, but just seeing this conversation happening in the context of active service with the community, people who need help, who are vulnerable or hurt or hungry, and, and also then seeing it in the context of this kind of power struggle between people who are like Jesus and yet antagonistic and people who are like Jesus and antagonistic within his close circle. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you putting it into into that context of absolutely not an isolated moment, that there have been so many um, moving parts happening before and after it, particularly around this notion of service and feeding and, and helping, and then almost having to answer to people who you would think know him best mm. about who he is. Mm. And I thought it was so interesting in this conversation, we're almost listening in on a conversation, on a chat. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting in that conversation that he names so many specific people or types of people who, who will reject him. Mm -hmm. That really spoke to me in this reading that I hadn't noticed before, that he, he will be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and then be killed, and then rise again. It, it's such a particular calling of, of the kinds of people that are stacked against him. And I, I, it wasn't just everybody hates me, <laughs> or everyone's going to reject me. Well, see, I, I, in this moment, I wouldn't usually, but in this moment, I'm feeling a lot of resonance with the um, tragedy in Waco which uh, there was an anniversary very recently this spring and uh, coming up I think into April will be the, the end of or the anniversary of the end of the siege and I watched a documentary about Koresh or Vernon Howell who was um, the key figure in that whole calamity and this this passage seems to resonate for a lot of people who do see themselves as the next best thing that lots of folks should look to and that the power brokers should fear or an expectation of resistance from folks. I mean, when we assume that the price of being honest or being clearly perceived is opposition, sometimes that might be accurate and very often also it, it's an excuse for people to project outwards their own stuff 
there, there are violences all around this passage. Yeah. Not just not just within the suffering that the Son of Man expects. Yeah, this passage certainly, in in the context of our world, mm-hmm. some two thousand years later, does seem to be a place of justifying mm-hmm. and making meaning out of suffering. I think there's a larger piece here around how do we understand suffering, particularly for those who do speak out against the status quo, do have the scribes and the Pharisees against them. What does it mean that that there is conflict around those identities and those sites of self? And then what I also see in the text is almost this making meaning around this idea of Messiah. Mm-hmm. And at first, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And the disciples say, who others have said that you are? And really name that they say, you're John the Baptist, Elijah, and or one of the prophets. They almost name people that have already lived. I don't think the concept of Messiah as, as the suffering one, as the one who will be crucified, that didn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Messiah was meant to be someone who came in glory and who, who restored Jerusalem to its glory days, mm-hmm. make Jerusalem great again, mm-hmm. for example. And to have Jesus then say, well, no, all of these bad things are going to happen, really flipped it on the head for the disciples such that Peter takes Jesus aside and said, whoa, man. it <laughs> <laughs> You're freaking us out, Jesus. And, um, and then how I'm hearing in your statement, how do we hold that biblical context with the context of so many who see in themselves greatness and mm-hmm. because of that greatness, they must suffer and people will be against them. And that justifies or even amplifies the fact that they are great. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, we've been doing this work a while and you can, you can name the, the pattern of the antagonist on social media who rejoices in being blocked because it proves that they're right and you're wrong when really they're just harassing you and being obnoxious or other organizers who will throw out a highly provocative article that uses destructive language about segments of the population and because they get backlash that justifies they're being persecuted for righteousness sake. And I mean, in this passage, even, even when he lists all these groups, he doesn't list the Pharisees. Mm. He, lists, he lists everybody but the Pharisees, which I, I think is interesting um, and, and may complicate the idea about where opposition comes from. Like very often, and this is what cropped up to me that during the first reading is, that I don't see in these groups an other. I see it as an in-house like issue. It's not, it's not the folks that you would expect not to get it. It's folks who are familiar with the stories of um, redemption and salvation and liberation. Um, the folks that you grew up with going to synagogue or shul or Sabbath school. The people that you read the scriptures with when you were a kid, the people that you can have like really coherent debates with about the text because you studied together. 
these are peers and cousins, like John was the son of a high priest. So these are these are relatives and friends and classmates. These are not others. Mm. These aren't Romans even. Yeah. These are our people. If we're reading through the theme of identity, these are people who share some points of common identity. Oh yeah. Yeah. These are these are our people. I don't I don't see anybody in this passage that's not our people. And that's an interesting point to lift up, a really amazing point to lift up, because what you don't see Jesus doing throughout the gospel, whenever he speaks, is making an us versus them argument, where the them are people of an identity group that he does not personally know. And I think if I'm looking to the text for some kind of answer of what do we do with that complex idea around the martyrdom of others, around, you know, I'm going to lob a uh, vitriolic argument into Facebook and get blocked, and, and then that justifies me as being a suffering one. I think the difference with some of that is the othering is so extreme and the pushing against, well, no, they're not like me, they're not like me, they're not like me, therefore I am better, mm-hmm. or we are better in mm-hmm. this identity group. Mm-hmm. And so to then read this text and see Jesus kind of not playing into that game and saying these specific people who I know and and probably have loved and been friends with are going to reject me. Mm-hmm. And yet I will still be, this, the, this Messiah thing is still true, mm-hmm. even if these hard things happen, mm-hmm. despite what your expectation or the expectation of even these very people that reject me is. I think that's an interesting that's an interesting thing to note for ourselves whenever we see that kind of martyr identity showing up in other people. Yeah, or ourselves to the point. <laughs> I mean, I think I think the first reading has to be at home mm-hmm. because it's about toward the end he's saying if anyone to become my followers and he's talking to disciples and he's talking to the crowd but at the end of the day, you make that choice on your own, and you you decide to to engage these teachings and apply them in a way that's it's not individual liberation, but it's an individual choice to join the liberation project. And you can not decide to join it and be carried along with it, but you still get to choose to opt in mm. at a certain level. Absolutely. A word really stuck out to me, and I wonder if it has any resonance for what you were just saying. In the New Revised Standard Version, and I'm curious what word was actually used in yours. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last verse, it said, those who are ashamed of me mm-hmm. and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of them, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word ashamed was interesting to me as a word choice. What is is that the same word used in yours or is it a different word? Yes, yeah, it's, it's the same word. Ashamed, ashamed. Um, let's see here. S38. Mm-hmm. 
The commentary does not comment on the shame. It stuck out to me mm-hmm. because I, I think ashamed is a very intimate knowledge. Mm-hmm. To be ashamed of something mm-hmm. is to know it deeply and whatever it brings up in you is that feeling of shame. And it's not those who are ignorant of me or those who don't, don't know who I am or those who, who even reject me, but who are ashamed. And I'm curious... What does it mean to be ashamed, given the context of this passage? Well, so immediately I wonder about the distinctions between guilt and shame that a lot of contemporary psychologists are using, i.e. that guilt is in reference to things that you have done wrong and shame is a, is a referendum on your value as a human being. And and if that's the case, then shame is always uh, like a conversation between you and an experience you're having and social norms that you're falling afoul of or some sort of external standard that is helping you interpret that dynamic between you and the thing. So I wonder about this concept of shame being related to these relationships that he's been talking about of his people and their understanding or failure to understand who he is, their assumptions about who he should be, their assumptions about what Messiah is, their assumption about what it means to follow a teacher or a leader or a liberator, and then putting that in conversation with his actual words, his actual teachings. I think there there could be a question around like perceiving something and not really liking what it means and therefore being ashamed about it because of whatever norms or social standards you've been taught to to put into play. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe it's related to something that he even says just a, a verse prior, for those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Speaking to what what that verse reminded me of is Jesus's temptation in the desert. Mm-hmm. When right after he's baptized in Mark, he's kind of swept into the desert or the wilderness by the spirit and fast for 40 days. And then Satan or the evil one comes to tempt him. And it doesn't say in Mark what those temptations are, but in Matthew it does. Mm-hmm. And in Matthew it says the third temptation from Satan was Jesus goes to a high mountain. And Satan says, look, like, look out on all of this. This could be yours if you but follow me. And, mm-hmm. and Jesus rebukes him and says, no, I follow God. And then the temptation's over. So in this moment of what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? to me speaks to that moment of temptation of following something, some ideal, some, some vision that's like, you're going to be, you're going to be the epitome of the epitome. You're going to have the whole world at your fingertips. And to do that, you just have to give up everything you believe in. And I think there's a lot of things that happen in our own lives where that we're on that mountain. And Jesus is saying here to me, what it looks like to do that fellowship is so different than all of the people who, who say, by doing this, you're, you're going to be 
you're going to be elevated above others. You're going to be given all of the power when consistently and over, over the course of his ministry, Jesus reminds us, reminds me, that giving up your power, that, that giving over power to others, sharing your bread with others is the tr- true way of fellowship. And I think the shame piece speaks to me and resonates with me of all those times where you have that voice in your head that's like, I could share my bread, but I just want my whole sandwich. <laughs> for example yeah and I, I think there's also you could totally dig into what actual life means because in this in that verse it's contrasted with the whole world which supposedly God so loved and then but it's contrasted there and and then in in the rebuke against Peter He's contrasting divine things and human things. And what does that mean to somebody who just fed 4,000 people with actual bread? Not metaphorical bread, actual bread. So apparently food is important, which I like that message that food is important. But, But what does it mean to contrast life and human things? The first thing that came to my mind when, when you're asking that question is how tangible feeding bread to 4,000 people is. That's specific. Mm-hmm. And to me, a very human thing is to think in broad strokes. And that's like the whole world imagery. Like, oh, I'm going to save the whole world. I'm going to fix the whole world. And failing to see the ways in which your own, my own community there are things that, that need addressing. There are people who don't have enough to eat. Jesus gets so specific over and over again. And life, you know, even, even thinking about being in New York City. When you're visiting New York, you're like, I have to go to all these different neighborhoods. I have to go here, there. I've been on the train for 600 hours. <laughs> do all these different things. But all my friends who live in New York, and maybe this is true for you, tend to live their lives within a series of a few neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. it's not everywhere it's right here mm-hmm. and to me that's life in its fullest deep deep presence yeah there's merit to that and i i think i've been around people who have basically lived within the same area give or take 15 miles for their entire lives and that's not at all my experience my experience is like across the oceans a couple of times and hip-hopping around the continent and that's that's my that's my whole life um but i think there's something about being and choosing to be fully present in the neighborhood that you live in at this time for however long you live in it and not getting so stuck into the the routine of work or or service either to not be able to see the, the human need of the people around you. And so I kind of love that even at this point in his life where he's beginning to turn towards the end, Jesus is still open to human need and being fully present with people and sharing bread with them and helping them to see more clearly, um, which is a complicated passage. Mm-hmm. But helping people to understand things um, challenging people's idolatrous notions about who he should be. Yeah. 
I think all yeah. of that is bound up in presence. Absolutely. And I know for so many people who are facing the end of their lives, mm. it's the most tangible, small moments that have the most meaning. Mm. It is sharing a bread with a loved one or a neighbor that feels the most sacred over the course of their lives, thinking about those moments as the ones that felt the most present, the most real. Mm -hmm. It's the small, the beauty of the small and the specific. Yeah. And what, what strikes me in this moment is he might be at the end of his life, but he's still 33. And that means he's younger than me. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of sobering to have somebody so young, both so aware of the fragility of life and so deeply inhabiting it. There are people who are much, much older who don't get that clarity until it's kind of forced out of them by circumstance. And there are other people who don't get to 33 at all. Right. As you well know. Yeah. Mm. Keisha, I'm wondering if you're feeling ready to move into our second reading. Yes, please. All right. Um, I'll be happy to read for us for this one. This is Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered to him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. As we listen to this text for the second time, how does this text call us? To resistance. I'm thinking about 
the ways in which I've had to learn because of my various identities to resist the imposed narrative. Just in that discussion about who folks say that I am. There's John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, the Messiah. He doesn't explicitly accept the Messiah designation. He just says, don't tell anybody about me, you know? And we infer that he accepts the Messiah designation, but all of those are imposed and not like self-declared in this passage. And the one, the one designation he does adopt is the Son of Man. But I think there is, for people to whom people look up, if people look up to you in any, in any context, really there's always that temptation to just fall into whatever stories they would prefer to tell about you. And in the context of like, social resistance or political resistance or theological resistance, there's always this uh, temptation, I think, to accept those imposed narratives. Oh, you are the new MLK. You are the latest Troy Perry, or you are the next whomever. When it, it might just be enough for you to be a son of man and to be human in the way that God has gifted you to be without becoming the next Jeremiah or the next John the Baptist or the next Elijah. So I think there's, um, there's resistance in listening for the stories that might inspire us, but not being swallowed up by them. There's so much in that, especially as each of the identities that they named for Jesus are other people and prophets who have operated in their own specific time and place. And the identities that get put on us as leaders in whatever kind of leadership that is are also people who've, who've operated in their own time and place. So this is an invitation to really sit with the new and the unnamed and there's a lot going on in this text of making meaning after the fact. We know that this gospel was not written as Jesus was traveling around necessarily. It was written years. Okay. I think Mark was the first one written down, right? Yeah. Supposedly, yeah. They're like close to 80, 80 or 90. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But that's still a good 50 years post-event. Post mm-hmm. At least a generation post-event, right? Absolutely. So in that sense, there was a lot of sitting with the unknown. The, mm -hmm. the meaning could not have been made necessarily in its fullest. So I think in, in this call to resistance and what you're bringing up is an invitation when we meet someone who's so completely unlike anyone we've ever met to allow the fullness of who they are to be what it is without adding a label that comes to us from something in our past. Yeah, a willingness to listen in community, I think, is really important. So he he is operating within the community of stories that they name. And he's operating in the community of the stories that come from the elders, the chief priest, the scribes. Mm -hmm. And he's diverging from all of them. 
because sometimes I think putting an identity on somebody is an act of instead of bringing them closer, actually kind of distancing, even even in someone you admire. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the next MLK. You're like, well, they're so amazing. I could never be like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like uplifting somebody by belittling yourself. I know I do that all the time, mm-hmm. even if I'm not putting an identity on somebody. Mm-hmm. And I think in its worst form, it shows up of someone saying, well, that's just a radical activist. <laughs> that's just a Black Lives Matter protester. And so it, it's a dismissive identity. Here, Jesus is standing up and saying, no, that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I may not name exactly who I am, but I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to ascribe to those narratives. And I, I, what, one of the points that I love in the, like it's buried in the introduction of the passage, that the links between the places where this happens and um, historically where temples were um, for other gods other than the god in the in the story. And, and this question of the way that people are labeled and the way that we then have to live up to or down to the labels we're given, it, it speaks to this kind of idolatry of dismissal and diminishment that really just damages so many relationships that might otherwise have space to flourish, have mm-hmm. space for people to flourish. Because the minute that you are saying that somebody is above you, and other to you, they become a little bit less human. There's less room for error and learning, which is the only way that we kind of grow is through error and learning. And there's less room for for evolution, for shifting positions and shifting politics and shifting tactics, which is also the only way that we grow and learn. Um, and if we don't have space to grow and learn, then we don't have space to be human, and therefore we are we are diminished in that in that like environment that's created from all the labels, all the stories, all the expectations, all the misapprehensions, all the misunderstandings, all the hopes, all the disappointment. I think some of that is the great suffering that mm. the Son of Man must undergo. Because mm. people just don't get it. And you can't force them to get it. And you can't argue them into getting it. And you can't make it clear for them, but perception is something that I think, contrary to the miracle, you can't give somebody. And he even gets it wrong the first time, or it's incomplete the first time. But when when somebody does perceive something, then you can't unperceive it for them. But in, in the in the challenge of, of that mid space between getting it and not getting it, or not getting it and getting it, there's great suffering for both parties, for, for the person that's misperceived and, and for the community who just, just really doesn't know what to do with them. This is a story I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> great, great suffering. I'm reminded of the conversations that I have with a lot of people who are working in church settings who want to provide a space that is welcoming of LGBTQ youth, Mm -hmm. for example. And yet, when it comes time to talk about pronouns and the use of the singular they, them pronoun, 
are unwilling to change their mental map of how pronouns operate, of how they've spoken aloud people's identities. And what I have to tell folks in that moment is how incredibly painful and damaging it is when a youth is consistently told again and again, you don't matter enough for me to change my thought. My idol matters more than you. My idol matters more than you. And I, I think that this is a way in which the mutual rebuking that Peter and Jesus do is just really fascinating and kind of, it's totally um, internet comment section, that, that whole exchange. It's, oh, you're wrong. No, you're Satan. No, you're wrong. No, you're Satan. <laughs> um, and I don't even know that it helped. Mm-hmm. Although Peter's may have been a direct message. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Peter's was a direct message and Jesus blasted him. <laughs> Jesus took a screenshot and put it on Twitter and there was a whole thing about it. <laughs> and did it help Jesus? <laughs> I don't did think so. It's like a couple chapters later, Peter is like denying him the whole three bit. But I mean. <sighs> but Peter got it in verse 29. He got it in verse 29. And then, then he couldn't let go of that enough to let Jesus do what he needed to do in the way that he needed to do it. Because sometimes the narrative inspires us to try to control how other people operate within the narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he almost says, but you're the Messiah. And then when Jesus is speaking openly mm-hmm. about what's going to happen and, and candidly, I almost see... He says, then he began to teach them. Mm -hmm. Is it them, the disciples? Is the crowd gathered in that moment? Um, No, I see this is among the disciples, and then he calls the crowd after he's called Peter Satan. Yes, so the crowd didn't do that. (laughs) But still, it's the the disciples get so uncomfortable with that reality. And to your point, because... In Peter's mind, that's not what a Messiah is. Like, you're the Messiah. You're gonna. You're amazing. Mm-hmm. Amazing stuff is gonna happen in in your lifetime. What I'm hearing in this passage around a place for myself to root my resistance is again and again in the listening to what others say of themselves and into the place of unknowing that I don't have to know. I, I want to know how things are going to play out. I'm a skip mm-hmm. to the last chapter kind of person mm-hmm. sometimes in many parts of my life. If this isn't going to play out the way I want it to, mm-hmm. the way I think it is, why even do it? Mm-hmm. Right? In making life plans and making dinner. And <laughs> <you laughs> um, where is a place to experience transcendence and holy and new life when I am able to let go of the outcome? I think we may be ready to move into our third reading. Keisha, would you be willing to read the section again? And we will will see where a vision of liberation emerges for us.
Mark 8, 27 to 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So this thing about resurrection is just like tucked in there and nobody mentions it. And I think that's really weird. (laughs) Say more about that. So, I mean, it's not something that flows naturally from the progression of great suffering and rejection and death. And he just mentions it. He drops it in there. This narrator, Mark, he just drops it in there and doesn't touch it until... I don't know if he even comes back to it because I haven't read the next two chapters in a little while. But I mean, talk about burying the lead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I can't say I don't like it. I mean, I like that the rejection is not the end of the story and there's life in potential after that. But my goodness. Yeah. And after three days, rise again. (laughs) Yeah, like... (laughs) What? P.S. <laughs> you would think the disciples would go, hold up. Could you rewind that? <laughs> what are you talking about? Because the transfiguration is next. And he says, after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. But that doesn't, that doesn't say when. There's an idea of resurrection on the last day yeah. that is in existence. Yeah. But that after three days is a yeah. very specific. What for you is liberating in that? There's an after the crap. The story may include a lot of sludge, but there's stuff that happens after that. There's, there's spring. I mean, we have a snow day today, the day after the start of spring in New York City. I'm not impressed at all. Apple Care told me there would be spring, but we have snow instead. And I know that 
spring is coming. It's just not here today. And I think in that little, but by the way, we'll rise again, is a nice like anchor point for encouragement in the midst of what otherwise is a fairly dark passage. Something that really spoke to me that I hadn't ever noticed before reading this text for this podcast is I grew up hearing this sentence. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me as a very personal, you're denying, you are the one denying yourself. Mm -hmm. You are the one shouldering your cross. Mm -hmm. You are the one following Jesus. And in the context of where I grew up in a very theologically conservative region of the world in the South, I, I, I think I even saw this like on, it was on t-shirts, people shouldering their crosses. Wow. And in that phrasing, it felt self-imposed, like you, you are responsible for doing all these things. And in reading the passage again this time, which I always thought that felt wrong to me, it, it felt off. And so reading the passage again this time, taking up your cross, the institution that provided the cross is the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And the reason you would have a cross in the first place is because you're deemed a rebel and you're going to be crucified. Mm. So that there's an interaction there between your actions live in such a way that, you know, in, in, in following Jesus, like it's, you can't predict if you're going to be crucified or not. Right. Mm. This is morbid, but no, but yeah, but it's not up to you to take this. Like, I think too many of us, Here's what I'm trying to say. I think too many of us shoulder crosses unnecessarily. That may not even belong to us. That don't belong to us. That contort our spines. Mm. That that ruin our physical beings because we think we have to suffer, and the things we have to suffer for are are projections of what we ascribe. It is not suffering coming to us. It is suffering we put on ourselves. Mm. deny yourself is in a white supremacist Christian heritage that's disconnected from mind and body and spirit. There's, there's, there's so many ways that denial of yourself has meant denial of other people and their humanity around whether it's disconnect from your sexuality or your physical embodiment in a particular way. So seeing this passage again, I think there's a vision for liberation in that it's not up to us. We're not solely responsible for carrying these crosses of our own making. Mm. That our job is to live in such a way according to the values of Jesus Mm. that maybe maybe it's against the Roman Empire in a way that we may face rejection. Mm -hmm. We may face suffering but don't unnecessarily make that suffering for yourself. And I, I think that reminds me of what we talked about in the first reading, which is the, the kinds of suffering that come from our own communities versus the kind of suffering that flows from a violent system. So one of the things that my colleagues and I are, are awake to at the moment is the violence inherent in the U.S. immigration system and immigration enforcement. 
Like there's ways in which people who simply speak up about that become targets. Like the system is inherently violent and has always been so, um, but it's particularly bold these days. And that's different from the suffering that comes from people within the community who all recognize that external violence, but maybe disagree on tactics, how to respond to the violent system, how to support vulnerable people in the system, who to elevate, who to deprioritize, when to act, when to step back, who should be visible, who should not be visible. And there's a whole world of suffering that comes from tactical disagreements, even among people who might otherwise be teammates. And being distracted by those crosses almost makes it impossible for us to take up the cross. Mm. Because I think there's, there's such a temptation in being distracted by those little C crosses mm-hmm. because in the interpersonal, intercommunity violence, that's the place where some of us feel we have control. Mm. True. That we can act out with this community because it's the only place I feel safe enough to do so. Here we have power. Out there mm-hmm. we don't. I can control when I'm crucified in this community. Mm. Wow. But yeah. What is the liberating vision in acknowledging this? I don't think it's morbid to say that we have to confront a fear of death. I think it's like really important. Um, not just in the, the literal sense of recognizing that we are part of a natural cycle of life and death and becoming nutrients for other creatures on this planet. That's how it was set up. And there are experiences where that cycle provokes great suffering as well. Several of my peers are losing their parents. That's the life stage we're in at the moment. Um, And there's great suffering involved in that. So there's a certain like confronting mortality that's one layer of it. There's also, I think, great freedom in making a certain peace with that, even if it doesn't resolve like our attachments to real people. But my own experience with illness and chronic illness has been that when I've been most clear that I am a person with a finite life, it challenges me to value the deep presence and um, when I can fully enter a space to do so without like holding back, without measuring out my words, without like giving 40%. Mm-hmm. I show up today. I show up all today as myself because I value the fact that I am here and tomorrow I may not be. So to me, that is liberatory and not like maybe for somebody else that might induce anxiety, but for me, it relieves it. And there's another piece of it, which is that uh, I'm freed when I recognize that my life is part of a larger life and, and I'm part of a larger story. So even the blip that I am, even that is part of a larger narrative. And if liberation is not complete in my lifetime, it's part of a story and I still have to be my part of the story. I still have to fulfill that. I still have to take up that cross. If, if it is a cross, I still have to take it up. But I give my portion and I trust that 
the wider story will be told with other people who are bringing other pieces to the to the larger narrative of life. So there's that too. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that it means making peace with the violence of the system. Because the violence of the system is not inevitable. It's maybe inevitable given how we've designed the system, but a system designed can be undesigned, unmade, and remade. It's not God. The system is not God. So I think that there is potential for liberation in recognizing the madeness of what we all were born into and not seeing it as a reality, capital R, that cannot be changed. And I struggle with that sometimes because it, it does it does project out this certain uh, it projects out a certain fixedness and a certain always been here nest and the the stories of violence go back generations and now thanks to technology we are surrounded by them. So it kind of sets up this thing where it seems that things have always been the way that they are. And it maybe challenges my uh, imagination and ability to hope sometimes. But the potential for liberation is in seeing that tucked into this story of suffering after three days, one might rise. Mm -hmm. And when you start looking for signs of resurrection Mm -hmm. and new life, you start to see them everywhere. How is there springtime in New York, even as it's blizzard? (laughs) I'm sure there's something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, A lot of people around here are preparing for the March March for Our Lives this weekend. What I'm hopeful about is that the youth who've been affected are not doing their work in isolation. And they're connecting out to their peers in Chicago and Detroit and elsewhere in Florida, people who are affected by pulse. That that seems like springtime to me. That maybe there's this moment where people are willing to do things a little bit differently, to not act in the system in a selfish way, Mm -hmm. to not use their power in a selfish way. That feels like spring. I believe there's great liberation to be offered in confronting what is true, that death is real, and staying awake for signs of new life, wherever they may be. And then we have a chance to offer that bread to others, to offer those those signs of life to others. I think one of the beautiful things about social media, it's not just trolls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's how many times a day, even as we're confronting the horrors of the state-sanctioned violence and death and the finiteness of life, that people are sharing stories of renewal and reconnection and courage. And courage, yeah. I was going to say commitment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and that gives me fuel to keep going, even when I'm feeling hopeless or that, that this is the end of the story. And my call to myself, so one of the ways we end this practice, 
of our reading is to offer a what are we taking from this conversation that we might want to implement in our own practice or life. What you've helped me to see through this conversation is to really be attentive. Deep presence is a act of attention and looking around to see both the hard things and looking at those with as much presence as I can and to be attuned to where I may see new life and how I may offer that as spread to others. Mm. Good. I think one of the things that I will be practicing more listening for the stories like maybe yes what are the stories of the people around me but also what are the stories of the systems around me what are the stories of the institutions that I think need to be moved and what are the stories that I'm bringing to them that both support and might undermine my ability to help move them um, because sometimes, sometimes I'm the scribe in the story. I'm not the son of man. Sometimes I'm the critic. Sometimes I'm Peter, and I kind of want people not to tell a certain story about themselves mm. because I worry what it might entail. And uh, therefore, sometimes I'm Satan. So I think if I can be more attentive to the stories that I'm running, and more attentive to the stories that those around me are running in the midst of those common stories where the stories overlap and where they clash and push and, and, and shape us. Maybe I can do more following of the Son of Man. Mm. Keisha, thank you so much for your deep presence. You model that so much to me and in, in your ways of being with people, of listening to their stories, of synthesizing a room of people to bring them together. And I'm very, very grateful to be in community with you. Thank you, Alex. I, I appreciate you and this space to, to dig deep into a text that means so much to both of us. Mm -hmm. So yeah. many people in this climate don't have that space to, to dig deep. And so thank you for creating this opportunity for me mm -hmm. and, for, and for us. Absolutely. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study. We are so glad you joined us, and I hope you found strength for your journey. If this episode got you fired up, be sure to check us out online or on Facebook at More Light Presbyterians, MLP.org. Peace be with you until we meet again. Bye.